Our scripture reading is from Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he all said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. A few more of you here than when we started. That time change and Mother's Day. Hope you mothers uh, had a croissant or something this morning and whatever you do. <laughs> ah. um, <clears throat> Hopefully you have your Bibles open to Luke 6 there. Um, just continuing our study uh, through Luke's gospel. We're looking at who Jesus is, what he has come to do, who he has come to do that for, how he completely changes our lives uh, forever. He's amazing. Uh, we're just going to gaze on him. So um, we're right in this middle of this section. Uh, really, we started this last week where Jesus and his disciples, they're being uh, attacked. They're being uh, challenged by the Pharisees. Um, last week, we saw the Pharisees questioning why Jesus associated with uh, the tax collectors, the sinners, the despicable ones. Um, they also were questioning why Jesus' disciples, they eat and they drink rather than fasting and, and praying. Uh, remember, the, the Pharisees are the religious elite. Uh, they are the, the vanguards of holiness. If you wanted to know what it really looked like to follow God, to be in relationship with God, to please God, the, the Pharisees would say, look to us, because we have that sorted out through our uh, rigorous rule-keeping. Um, uh, in this, they were, um, they were criticizing Jesus and his, his disciples, their, their way of living, um, and, and it's important to know why they are doing that. Uh, why does it seem that they've put such a large target on Jesus' back um, that, that no one else seems to have? Because um, like the Pharisees in the section we're looking at today, they're, they're intentionally following and spying on Jesus. Like Jesus and his disciples, they're in a rural area. They're out in the fields. Like what are the Pharisees doing there to like try to catch them out? Where they're, they're following him. They're, 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 uh, they're, they're looking to criticize him. Why? 
why so much energy on attacking Jesus? Well, you have to remember what Jesus is doing at this time. Uh, he's going from town to town, and he's doing what? He's, he's healing, yes, he's performing miracles, uh, but that's really the, uh, those miracles are secondary to the primary reason he is, he's on mission here. The primary reason that he said that he's going from town to town is to, is to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. He's preaching, he's proclaiming the arrival of God's kingdom on earth, the breaking in of God's kingdom to the, the here and now. Jesus is going around, he's seeking lost, he's seeking the sick, he's seeking sinners, and he's inviting those people to repent from their ways and to follow after him and to become part of God's kingdom, to be invited to, to dwell in God's kingdom. Remember what the message of that kingdom is, the, the mission of Jesus. We looked at that back in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Jesus says, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor, uh, sight for the blind, liberty, freedom for the captives and the enslaved. And lastly, he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's what we really get to look at today. Uh, the year of the Lord's favor, he's referring to the year of Jubilee, which for uh, Israel was one entire year every 50 years, so essentially one year in, in your lifetime, uh, that the people would, were commanded to stop working and to rest for a year. Um, they would let their land rest, uh, it would be restored, debts were canceled, slaves and servants were, were given their freedom. Um, and really the, the point of that, the point of the year of Jubilee was to, uh, to be this foreshadow to the rest and the freedom that the Messiah would come and institute, not just for one year, but for all of eternity, this, this ultimate rest, this eternal rest. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Does a year of Jubilee just sound like amazing to you? Let's do that. A whole year of, of, of stopping and, and resting. Well, if that is what you're after, then great because that's exactly what Jesus has come to offer you. Um, he's come to offer rest, true rest, eternal rest, not one year of resting, but a, a, a true and lasting rest that comes with the Messiah. That's what Jesus has come to fulfill. It's actually helpful to think of it in that way because what you see in the Old Testament, uh, you see this, that the Israelites were, remember they were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. They experienced a 400-year kind of vacuum of rest, constant work, constant toiling. Um, and, and you know the story. God breaks into their situation. He delivers them from that slavery. He brings them out of Egypt. Uh, they enter into the wilderness for 40 years, and they're making their way to what? The promised land, which is where they would find rest. And that promised land was on the other side of the Jordan. Cross the Jordan, and you enter into that rest. Um, it's interesting, though, then, to see how Luke has laid this out and what Jesus has done so far and how he is fulfilling that, that Jesus is this kind of true and better Israel and Jesus, he enters into his own kind of tour of the wilderness for 40 days, not 40 years. But then he goes through the Jordan through his baptism in that river. And now he is then ushering us into that final rest. He's inviting us in to experience that ultimate rest, which is, which is what he's been doing for, God's been doing that for his people. That's his, has always been his plan. 
Um, this ultimate rest, it, Jesus uses these terms to describe it. He calls it the kingdom of God. He, it's this rule and this reign of God, God's kingdom that's breaking in. And God's kingdom is, is the realm of the redeemed. It's the realm where true and lasting rest is found. And Jesus has come to bring this reality. And he does that by freeing us from our sins, by, by, by giving us our, our sight back, by, by uh, freeing us from our poverty and our captivity, of relieving us from our toiling so that we can receive and experience rest from God. And he, he does that not by coming and offering that through a new and kind of alternative religion. He's here with a whole new way. He's here with a whole better way to enter into this rest. Last week he said it's, he's this better wine that you can't put into old wineskins. It, it will burst that old system. It, you, you, you can't fit it into the old system. What he brings is new, it's better. It's the fulfillment of, those old, of that old covenant, but it's, it's something new, it's better, it's unlike, any, unlike the old in, in every way which has been his plan, to bringing his people into true and lasting rest. That's been God's plan from the very beginning. That's what you see in Genesis. It's what we were created for. It's what you see in Revelation. It's what we end up. You see, the, the entire Bible is about God bringing his people to true and lasting rest. It's about God doing that for his people. And Jesus is saying, that's what I've come to do for you. That's what I've come to offer for you. That's what I've come to bring to its fulfillment, and it's actually found in me. And, and it's that message that makes Jesus many, many enemies. That's what the, the Pharisees are his enemies for. Um, you see that in this, these kind of Sabbath scandals, um, that, that these kind of day of rest scandals. But before we look at those, I think it's I just want to spend a, a good kind of chunk this morning kind of overviewing the Sabbath because if, unless you have a good understanding of, of what and why the Sabbath is, then these, the text doesn't really make as much sense. It doesn't hit, hit home quite as much. So um, let's look at the Sabbath. Um, let me pray for us one more time before we keep going. Um, Jesus, we thank you for you and what you've come to bring us into. We thank you for the, the way um, that you bring us into and what we were created for, a true and lasting rest. Um, teach us this morning, Lord. Open our, height, open our hearts, open our eyes, Lord. We love you. Um, in your name we pray, amen. To understand Sabbath, it's helpful to, to, to remember God's purpose for creating humanity um, was for you to, us to dwell with him. So you see Adam and Eve dwelling in God's presence, um, knowing him, intimately in relationship, enjoying Him. Um, we often make the, this mistake of thinking that, that our work is a result of the fall in Genesis 3, um, that Adam and Eve, they, they partake of the fruit, they rebel against God, sin enters this world, and then the result is that we now have to go out and work. Um, that's not true at all. Um, Adam and Eve were created to work. They were created to tend the garden, to have dominion uh, over the earth. God himself sets this pattern of work and rest for us. He himself works for six days joyfully, and then he rests uh, on the seventh. Um, work is not a result of the fall. The result of the fall is that our work is distorted. Our work has become toiling. It's become exhausting. It's become a struggle. 
Um, but even in, in that, it's not that God says, hey, you know what, because your work is going to be so exhausting now, it's so difficult, I'm going to command you in the Ten Commandments to, to rest for stop one day uh, a week because you're going to need it. That is not what Sabbath is. That's a misunderstanding of what Sabbath is. The Sabbath day is not meant to be a fix for that post-fall toiling kind of work. Because although he gave that commandment on Mount Sinai, he, God actually instituted that before Genesis 3, in creation, before sin had entered the world. God says, I, I, I myself am going to lay this, this, this pattern out for you in creation, working for six days, joyfully resting on the seventh. Not because God needed it, not because he, he got tired, but to set an example for us. He gave us that example before our work was spoiled by sin, before it became this struggle. That was his way. He instituted that in creation. It was always been uh, meant to be for us as a reminder from God that your work is not your identity, that, that your work is not what gives you your worth. Your work does not determine your worth. God says, that only comes from me. He says, yes, work, that's what you were created for, but, but, but work for me, work for my glory, not yours, and work from your identity in me, and then take one day, one out of seven, and stop working and rest and remember that I am your provider, that, that I am your source of identity, that I am your source of joy and satisfaction. You will not find those things in your work. You can only find that in me. God says, because of me and your relationship to me, you can actually stop. You can sleep. You can rest knowing that I never stop providing for you. I never stop caring and ruling over creation. You can trust me to look after you. You can stop and be with me. That was God's way for us before sin ever entered this world. And after the fall, you see how our work has then become distorted, that we now live in a society where your work becomes your identity. When you meet someone, the first thing you ask them is, what's your name? Followed closely is, what do you do? I, I don't think that question is always like nefarious. It's not always like consciously kind of weighing people up, and, but, but that's what's underneath that question. It's so ingrained in our sinful way of thinking that your work is your identity, that your work is what gives you your worth. We live in a performance-driven society, don't we? And, and that pride, that, that sense of, of finding your sense of worth, your stability, your joy, your satisfaction, your dignity in your work, in what you do, in your toiling, the, the root of that is a desire to claw your way back to that ultimate rest. Our work is no longer done out of a response to God and, and our identity in Him, but as a way to prove ourselves. And each of us have that, that pharisaical desire to earn our way, don't we? We like giving to charity. We don't like being charity. Um, when you're invited over uh, to someone's house for dinner, the question is, what can I bring? <laughs> I'll bring a bottle of wine. I'll bring some napkins, anything, something. I've got I've to contribute. I've got to bring something. And that's exactly the, the scandal of the grace of Jesus, 
that our pharisaical desire to earn something completely pushes against. Jesus says, friends, not only do you not need to earn your way to me, you can't. It's only through my grace. You see, rest and not toiling was what we were created for. You were created to work, but you were not created to toil, to strive. You were not created to claw your way back to Him, to claw your way forward. Even our work, it's meant to be a duty of delight, not a burden that wears us down. You see how sin has distorted our work? Because of sin, work is no longer a joy. It's meant to be a joy, and sometimes we get glimmers of that, don't we? But because of sin, our work wears us down. Our work is a labor. In Genesis 3, sin enters the world, and, and it separates us from God. That relationship is broken, and that place of rest with Him is no longer for us. And now because of sin, the desire in every human heart is to work, work, work your way back to Him, to claw your way back to that ultimate rest, that place that you were created for. And that is exactly where the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees comes from. Because their way was to use that Old Testament law as a way to work their way back to Him, to work there and earn their way back into their relationship with God. But Jesus comes with a whole opposite way. He says in Matthew 11, come to me. Come to me and I'll give you rest. That's Jesus' way of getting into right standing with God. That, that's his way of getting back to that true and lasting rest is through him. It's, it's not by keeping the law. It's simply by coming to him. And he says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's interesting, isn't it? Because a, a yoke, it's meant to assist an ox in their work. A yoke, is, it's actually meant to make the work easier. Usually, a yoke would be a, like a W shape that would be placed around the neck of two oxen side by side. And it was, it was meant to make the laboring easier. But what the Pharisees had done with the law is they made the yoke of the Old Testament a burden. It's a way to strive and earn your way back to God by what you accomplish, by what, what you do, by how good you can be. That's the way back to God. And Jesus comes and says, friends, that relationship for God, with God, that rest is for you, but you'll never get back to it by keeping the law. It's only available through me. And guess what? You don't have to work for it. It's a gift of grace. And he says, on the other side of that, your work can once again be a joy. It can once again be this duty of delight instead of a struggle, instead of a toil back to God. And Jesus says, that rest is found when you come to me. He says, no longer will you work in order to rest. That rest will just be found when you come to me 
and only me. And that message of grace was, was scandalous to the Pharisees. They absolutely hated it. We saw their outrage at it last week. They're grumbling at the fact that Jesus is reclining at the table with despicable, traitorous sinners when they had done nothing at all to earn his favor. He should have been eating with them. He should have been eating with the righteous ones. Look at what we've done. Scandalous. And the fasting, Jesus, they say, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? The Pharisees completely missed the point of fasting. Fasting, along with everything else in the Old Testament, was, was meant to point them to the Messiah. And Jesus says, here I am. I, I'm right here. This is a time for celebration. Don't you see? And the Sabbath, the Pharisees took that fourth commandment to, to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy, and they, they, they put their entire lives on it. They saw that this was the way to get right with God, and they took that law, and they just, they just went to town on it. They, 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 they turned it into something massive. They completely missed the point. What was meant to be a gift, of, a gift from God to remind them of their identity in Him they turned it into a way to actually work for his, his, his favor again. What was meant to be a gift of rest became work in, it, in, it, in itself again. So they, they devised rules. They, they, they put more lists of defining what work was on the Sabbath. Not allowed to work. Well, here's all the ways that, that, that here's all the definitions of work. You couldn't uh, take, uh, there's a certain amount of steps you could take on the Sabbath. And if you took any more than that, then that's considered work. You've broken the Sabbath. They didn't have like washes and stuff to like count their steps. You put one, two, three, four, can't go over 2,000. You couldn't cook on the Sabbath. You couldn't light a fire on the Sabbath because that was considered work. And it went on and on and on. And pretty soon, under these Pharisaical rules, it became almost impossible to keep the Sabbath. No longer was it a restful day for God's people. It was the most stressful day for God's people. They failed to see how all of those Old Testament rituals and practices, they were meant to prepare them for and point them to Jesus, the Messiah. They were never meant to be a way to, to claw their way back to God. That was never the point of the law. And here they continue in that misunderstanding in chapter 6, verse 1. And Jesus and his disciples, they're going through a grain field. They're, they're hungry, and they're, so they're picking grain with their hands. They're, they're, they're eating some of the grains of head, the heads of grain. And the Pharisees, if it's a Sabbath, you can make sure they're there. They're, they tend to follow Jesus around, watch a little bit closer on the Sabbath. There's more opportunity to, to catch him out, and they're watching, and they, they see the disciples doing this, and they say, gotcha. Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They think they've, they've caught them out because technically, technically, they're doing some, some grain harvest here. They're doing some work. Now, they weren't breaking the rules by, by eating some of the grain. They weren't stealing here. Deuteronomy 23 gives this, this gleaning law that said it was, law, it was lawful for kind of passers-by who were poor and hungry to, to kind of glean from the outer portions of a farmer's field. The farmer were, was actually meant to leave those bits for these gleaners. As long as they didn't use a sickle and they're like actually harvesting their, their flock, they can take a little bit. So they're okay to do that. But the Pharisees catch them out for technically working because they're rubbing these grains together. They're, they're separating the wheat from the chaff. 
And that's work. And look how Jesus responds to this ridiculous accusation in verse 3. He says to the Bible experts, have you not read your Bibles? He says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. So Jesus, he's referring back to that Old Testament story in 1 Samuel 21, where David, he's not yet king, but he's on the run from King Saul. King Saul's trying to kill him because David is the, um, God's chosen king to replace Saul. And while he's on the run, David and his men, they grow hungry. It's like Jesus and his men. Uh, and the only safe place they can find is in the temple. And in the temple, there was always to be the bread of the presence, these, these 12 loaves of bread, one for every tribe of Israel, is meant to be a memorial before God. And the only people who were allowed to work with that bread and actually eat it when it grew stale and they needed to replace it were the priests. Only the priests could do that. Not just anybody could just stroll in and, and munch on the bread. But David and his men, they go in. In that story, they ask the priest and he gives them his blessing to eat this bread. Now Jesus, he's very intentional with his storytelling. He's not just saying, well, David could do it. Why can't I? He's doing something more here. You see, Jesus, he's using this parallel story, and by doing this, he's putting himself in the place of David, who is the most celebrated, most important king of Israel, which would have been offensive to the Pharisees, but it's also offensive because he's putting them in the position of Saul, who's trying to kill David, a little bit of a foreshadow for what we see at the end of this text. But he does something more than that. He's also putting himself in the position of a priest who can go in and do the work of a priest in the temple. He's putting himself in the, in, in the position of the priest who goes in, does the work, and doesn't violate the Sabbath. Matthew's account actually adds another important detail. In Matthew's account, he, he adds that Jesus asked the Pharisees, haven't you read the law that on the Sabbath days, the priest in the temple violate the, the Sabbath and are innocent? Have you ever wondered that? Like, if God forbids work on the Sabbath, then why does he allow the priests to go into the, the, the temple on the Sabbath to do the work, but they aren't violating the... What's happening there? It, it, it's the, that, that's allowed because their work that they're doing, it's not that toiling and striving kind of work. They're working for the Lord. They're working in the presence of the Lord in the temple. They're working from their identity as His. See, this is this Garden of Eden kind of work. That's why the priests were allowed to work on the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm here for. And Matthew, he goes on and he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. What's something greater that's from the, 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 than the temple? He's talking about himself. He's, he's something greater than the temple. What was the temple for? The temple was the place where God would dwell in the presence of his people, which was on the seventh day, the Sabbath. Jesus saying, I'm, I'm better than that. What, what I'm doing is when Jesus is walking around, it's like a perpetual Sabbath. Jesus' whole life is Sabbath. He's enacting the Sabbath. The mission of the Messiah was to come and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee, that, that perpetual rest, that, that perpetual Sabbath. And Jesus says, everything I do is Sabbath activity. 
In verse 5, he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That, that title, Son of Man, we'll probably go into it a little bit more later, but it's, it's a title that Jesus loves to use for himself. Uh, and it comes from Daniel 7, where, where Daniel sees this vision. Uh, it's, just read it. Uh, Daniel says, I need my glasses to read that. Uh, and behold, with the, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God in heaven, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and languages would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Who's that talking about? It's pointing to the Messiah. It's pointing to Jesus. So, so that, that title, it's actually a claim to divinity. It's a claim to be the Messiah. And Jesus often uses that for himself. He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I rule over the Sabbath. I am the one who instituted the Sabbath. The Sabbath is about me. You see, that, that Sabbath rest that you and I were created for, Adam and Eve alongside God in the garden, that, that fell apart. Sin entered the world. It was broken. But then there was this promise of another human who would come, and he would, he would come and reinstate that rest. He would come and offer that eternal rest once and for all, and Jesus is saying, that's me. That's what I'm here for. I am that son of man. You see, the Pharisees, they completely missed the point of Sabbath. They completely missed who it was preparing them for, who it was pointing towards. And so Jesus, over and over and over again, he can take any Old Testament law, any Old Testament character, all of those rituals, and he's constantly saying, they point to me. They are preparing you for me. That, that fasting that, that you guys think earns you favor with God, it's actually about me. It's actually to prepare you for me, and here I am. Let's celebrate. The Sabbath that you are, you are set on keeping every letter of the law in order to, to please God, in order to work your way back to Him. Listen, it's about me. It's about rest in me. It's about a rest only I can offer you. One commentator puts it like this. He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And as Lord of the Sabbath, He rules the Sabbath. And He can only rule the Sabbath if, in fact, He owns it. And He can only own it if He is the one who made it and gave it. The seventh day, like all days, is put beneath the Lord's feet. Verse 5, it's a powerful statement from Jesus' own mouth that He is God. He continues in verses 6 to 11. So read that again. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and he was teaching. That's what Jesus does. And a man was there whose, hand, whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him. That word watched is watch closely. They're, they're spying on him again. They were there to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. They're in church to see a miracle, not to stir up belief, but to accuse him. It's called confirmation bias. Verse 8, but, but Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew why they were there. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, the Pharisees, I ask you, 
Is it not lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, he said, stretch out your hand. And the man did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So the question in this section, it's the exact same as the one in the previous one. And the question is, what is lawful to do on the Sabbath? And in this case, Jesus, he, he takes the initiative. He initiates this uh, confrontation to make a point. He brings this man, he heals him, and then he puts the question to the Pharisees. Is it better to heal in this situation or to destroy? Is it better to, to do harm or to do good? Those are the two options that he gives. Is it better to be like Jesus who, who helps this man on the Sabbath, or is it better to be evil and postpone his healing? Because like healing the man's hand wasn't the issue here. The Pharisees were fine with Jesus healing his hand. They just didn't want him to do it on the Sabbath. Why? Because that wouldn't fit in their system. They, they created these extra rules around the Sabbath. One of the rules was if, if, you, if a home collapsed and it trapped someone, but that person wasn't in a life-threatening position, then they were meant to, to leave that person and help them the next day because that would be work. <laughs> if, you could, if, you could, if they could wait, then, then wait and do it the next day. There was provisions for medical emergencies, so if that person was dying, then you were allowed to get them out. If, uh, if a childbirth, they were allowed to, to, to kind of assist in a childbirth. But if it could wait, then you'd do it the next day. And in this situation, there's nothing about this man's withered hand that demanded that it be dressed on the Sabbath. He probably had a withered hand for a while. He's probably living with it. This wasn't a life-threatening thing. So Jesus should have, in their eyes, waited to heal him tomorrow. And Jesus says, you've completely missed the point. He is essentially asking them, what would healing on the, why would healing on the Sabbath be a problem? Healing is good. It, 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 it relieves suffering. It restores the body. All of us would want to be healed if, if we were sick. So Jesus, he's effectively asking them, what is it about your understanding of the Sabbath, a holy day, that prevents people from doing holy things like doing good and relieving people of suffering? You see, the Pharisees, they assumed that their religious rules for the Sabbath were more, impe- more, more important than the people who were worshiping on the Sabbath, which is what you saw in the previous uh, section too, that they were more concerned with the rules of the law than they were for the hunger of these men. And here, they're more concerned with, with following the letter of the law than Jesus healing this man's hand right then and there. That's when you know you've become a Pharisee, <laughs> is your rules become more important than people. But for Jesus, doing good, helping someone in need is always more important. For Jesus, he gives us two options. For Jesus, if you're not helping someone when given the opportunity, you're doing evil. You're, do, you're destroying their life. You see, the, it's this, we're given this litmus test for true worship versus false religion, and it's to look at our response to human need. That the true test of worship is how we respond to those in need. 
It's not about how many rules you follow. It's not about how many Sunday gatherings you come to. It's not about how many prayer meetings you go to or how often you go to MC family dinner. Are those things really important? Yes, you, you should want to do those things. But what we're saying is it's, 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 it's valuing doing good for others. Unless we're doing that, we're not worshiping God truly. It's our response to the weakest. It's our response to the most vulnerable in society that shows what we worship. See, Jesus prioritizes people over religion. What's your response? What's, what's going through your mind? Maybe it happened this morning when you're walking down the road when you approach someone who's outside of your moral and social circle. What are you thinking? Please don't ask me for something. Please, please don't say anything to me. Or does your heart break for them? Do you have a desire to help them like Jesus does? Listen, for Jesus, how we care or don't care shows where we're worshiping. Again, Jesus, the Pharisees, they didn't mind if Jesus healed this man. They just didn't want him to do on the Sabbath. Wait until tomorrow, because then you definitely won't be breaking the law. But Jesus heals him anyways, and they are outraged at him, which is funny, isn't it? Because he really didn't break the Sabbath. He, all he did was he didn't do any work. He just spoke. He did, that, he did that work that he did in creation where he creates by speaking. That's his kind of work. But for them, he's not really breaking any rules. He, he uses words. He just told the man to stretch out your hand. He didn't touch him. He didn't massage his hand. He didn't anoint it with oil. There's no work at all. He just tells him to stretch out his hand. So he didn't technically violate the Sabbath. So why are they outraged? They're outraged because Jesus, he's not bound by the law. He is led by love. He is not bound by the law. He is led by love. And that didn't fit into their religious system. This is new wine that is bursting their old wineskins. It's important to note, Jesus isn't showing us that, that love and showing mercy is greater than the law because the point of the law was to show mercy in the first place. Jesus is actually, he's not breaking the law. He's not doing away with the law in this situation. He's actually fulfilling it by doing what the law says he should have done. Doing good is true worship. Helping and loving others is true worship. That's always been the case. That's always been the point of the law. So Jesus is actually fulfilling the law. And um, you see this in, in, in Micah chapter 6. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, the prophet Micah says, what shall I come before, what, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? He's essentially asking, how should I worship the Lord? What does true worship look like? And he asks, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? He pulls an Abraham here. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? It is the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He's asking, what do I need to do? What can I bring to worship God? 
And in verse 8, we have the answer. He, he has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? This is, what does Yahweh, what does God require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. You see, God is not impressed with your religion if you are not caring for those in need. God is not impressed with your religion if you are not caring for those in need. God wants us to do justice, to be, to, to, to be kind, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with Him. You see, a Christian who is religious about church but doesn't help those who are in need isn't really worshiping God. Jesus doesn't let the rules and regulations that surrounded the Sabbath stop him from meeting the needs of his, of his hungry, hungry friends. He doesn't stop him from meeting the, the need of this, this man with a withered hand. Jesus was led by love, and so should we. Pastor Tabidi Anyawile, he wrote, we cannot pretend to worship Jesus if we refuse to help those in need. We cannot pretend to worship Jesus if we refuse to help those in need. That kind of stings, doesn't it? It actually stings more if you read it, if you kind of read it in the reverse. If you're refusing to help those in need, you are pretending to worship Jesus. In some ways, it's actually helpful to read that Isaiah passage backwards. We are to walk humbly with our God we are to walk humbly with Him. What does that mean? We are to understand that, that you are not the center of the story. It, it's about Him. It's about what He is doing and how we can be part of that. Our identity is not found in anything besides Him and who He says we are. We should walk humbly with Him. And what does walking humbly with Him produce in us? It produces loving kindness. In other words, it makes us more like Him, kind and loving, merciful. And what does that loving kindness produce in us? Well, it makes us more compassionate. We, we, we have a, a desire to, to do justice, a desire to, to help those in need. That's, that's what true worship looks like. Look at verse 11, really done. Jesus heals this man's hand, but they, the Pharisees, were filled with fury. This is this blind rage. And they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So we've made it to chapter 6, and they've had enough already. <laughs> they are already begin their plot to kill Jesus. You see, Jesus was, he was so set on helping those in need that it would cost him his life. He was so set on helping those in need that, that eventually he would be nailed to a cross. That's extreme compassion, isn't it? Like that is some extreme compassion. Who would be worth helping so much that Jesus was willing to die for them? You. Like yes, the, the, this man with the withered hand that the paralytic lowered from the roof, the leper, Levi, the, the despised tax collector, but also you. 
We, we are the ones who are in desperate need of his help, in desperate need of his healing. But for us, for justice to be carried out, a death would have to be paid. Because unlike Jesus, who never breaks any of God's law, we have broken every one of them. But Jesus is so set on helping those in need that he is willing to pay that penalty himself on our behalf. You see, Jesus, do you see his love for you, his, his desire to help you in your need, his desire to heal you from your sin and sickness? It has no bounds. He gives his life up in order to help you. Jesus is the ultimate example of supreme love, of supreme kindness, of grace and mercy, isn't he? It's important to grasp that, that we are the ones who are in need of his help before he calls us to help those in need. We are the ones who need the help first. We first need to be healed and Jesus is the one who comes and does that for us. He's the one who, who comes and, and heals us in his sacrificial death on the cross. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He, he has come to do the work. He has come to take that death and help us in our time of need. But he, then he does redeem us. He, he heals us. He invites us into his kingdom. And he invites us to come and be, and be like him. Come be followers of me. Come walk humbly with me now. Come and love kindness like I do. Come and do justice like I do. Now he said, it might cost you your life. It might lead you to death, but it's, but it's so worth it because this is true worship. So church, behold Jesus again this morning. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one who comes to help us in our time of need. He's the one who offers true and lasting rest. You don't get that from working and clawing your way back to him. Uh, you only receive it, receive that rest when you come to Jesus. He gives you that rest. So lay down all your efforts. Surrender. Lay aside all your rule keeping. Even, even your justice doing. Please don't be tempted to, to use that in order to gain access. Don't, be, don't turn justice into legalism, and don't turn it into work either. Jesus says, come to me, and I'll give you that rest. I'll heal you completely, and then take my yoke upon you. It's light. It's not a burden. It's, it's, it, the work you experience in me is actually a joy. It's that Garden of Eden kind of work. You can work joyfully without trying to use that as a way to crawl your way back to God. You can work from your relationship with me now. In me, you are free to do justice. You are free to love kindness. You are free to walk humbly alongside of me. You're free to be like me. You're free to, 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 to come and, and be part of this kingdom. You see, he's, he's, he's inviting you to come be part of his kingdom.